So, here's a question. Does anyone of you know why, at the beginning, tweets on Twitter were limited to 140 characters? Ah, you're going to learn something today. The original character limit was implemented because, because Twitter started via short message service, or SMS. A lot of you have seen that term. And at that time, SMS carriers were limited to 160 characters on each message. And so Twitter reserved 20 characters for usernames. So that is why tweets were limited to 140 characters. You can share that this week and look really smart with somebody. Uh, but eventually it doubled, it continues to expand. I mean, Elon Musk bought, I mean, all kinds of changes. But for the majority of users at the beginning, one of the biggest appeals was the character limit. Uh, it was the key attractive defining element of Twitter. It was their DNA. In a culture of information overload, it, the limit forced people to communicate in succinct, creative ways, and as a result, uh, Twitter feeds were filled with creatively communicated ideas and one-liners and clever conversations. It what, it's what made Twitter, Twitter. And to some degree, it has always been appealing to humans whenever we can package or have packaged for us compelling thoughts and ideas in, uh, into wording that is meaningful, uh, memorable, portable. In fact, there was a prototype of Twitter in the Old Testament. Anyone want to guess what book that was? Proverbs. It's like the original Twitter, but with ink and scroll. Uh, but the authors understood that there's just something valuable and attractive to humans when you can boil down big ideas to an irreducible minimum. I mean, how many of you, if you're honest, if you see a post on social media and it says, like, click for more, you're just like, nobody's got time for that. It's just like, or uh, if you get an email, especially if it's on your phone and you got to, like, scroll down a bit and it's like, oh, well, this is going to have to wait. Or you get a text message. It's like you have to tap it to actually see the whole thing. You got certain people who, who let's just be honest, when you get the notification, you see who it is, like, yeah, that's going to have to wait till later. Uh, and just sometimes, if you're honest, which I won't make you raise your hands, it might be like a day or two, like, oh, I never responded to that or actually read it. And just so you know, I fully embrace that for some of you, it's me, it's my name. If it pops up, Chad, like, oh, that's, that's going to have to wait for my next trip to the bathroom or something. It's just like, and I don't judge you, okay? My wife said many years ago, I have many words. So I, I, I get that. I have a lot of words with her exact. So, but uh, however, the funny, a little bit ironic thing is I have a friend of mine who is a millennial uh, that there is also a too short when it comes to messaging. Uh, like if she says, hey, I'm going to do such and such, if I simply reply with K, that means I'm mad at her. So, I mean, it can be confusing at times. But, but my point is this, that most of us, most of us, uh, if we're honest, we don't want to fluff. Like, we don't want all the extra. We don't want to circle the airport. And listen, I know I sound hypocritical saying that because if you talk to me, you'll know I'll circle the airport. You need to know all the context around things. Uh, but it's just like, just hit the key points uh, because we're busy. And honestly, our minds with our screens and all of the speakers in our life, it's just like a constant fire hose of information and opinions and data points and posts and reels and messages and notifications. And we just long for someone to just, just give me the irreducible minimum of what I need to know. Like just, just boil it down. And for many of us, this is true when it comes to God and faith as well. And we're not actually the first ones to feel this way. In the Gospels, more than once, actually, Jesus was asked this question. Jesus, of all the commandments, which 
one is the most important. So the Jews had 613 laws. Like, okay, that's a lot. Uh, So Jesus, help us out. Can you just boil it down? Can you just give us the irreducible minimum? There's 613. Which one is the one to rule them all? And interestingly, interestingly, in the very beginning, there was like one command, one rule, but we couldn't even remember to keep that one. So if we're honest, even knowing the rules isn't necessarily confirmation or that we're not going to break it, but conversation for another day. But today we're in part two of a series that we began last, last week. In this series, each one builds on the others. Uh, other. And we're just one of a passionate group of churches doing this series, the fundamental list, recovering the essentials of our faith. And we're actually building a list, a literal list of the irreducible minimum answer to this question. What must a person believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus? Not what must a person do, because we talk about doing all the time, because doing is what makes the difference. But our beliefs inform our actions and our expectations, so it is also very important. It's important that you answer the question, in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus, what do I have to believe? And this especially matters for us, because as a church, our whole mission is summed up in saying that we exist to help people find and follow Jesus. What's essential to that? What's essential to be and become a faithful follower of Jesus and what's not? What's just traditional or what I've always been told? And one of the things that makes it so confusing is that Christianity has become like a collage of thousands of different versions and brands. The term that we use is denominations. And each denomination has their own terms and conditions and traditions and interpretations. They don't even all use the same Bible uh, translation. The only thing that they all have in common is that they all are convinced that they are absolutely right. And everyone else is not. That others are uninformed or misinformed, so they set themselves apart. In fact, I took this picture driving in this morning, uh, and so I think they're making pretty clear where they're landing at, that they are uh, King James, and that they're independent, and they're fundamental. So, uh, you know, so they're making their brand really clear before you walk in. So they are fundamentalists, while we together are building a fundamental list. Okay, so you got it. And uh, one of the other things that makes this a confusion is you go all the way back to the second century. In every generation, there's new and novel ideas and philosophies and approaches to what a Christian or what a church should look like, what it should feel like, what it should sound like. It just gets woven into Christian traditions and expectations and historically harmful and even toxic things have gotten woven into certain expressions of Christianity into current day. And the tragedy is that sometimes those things rise to the point to where they're considered essential or considered non-negotiable. They become part of a denomination or tradition's theology or doctrine or dogma. And it's if you don't believe this, then you're not a true Christian. If you don't embrace this, then, then you're out. And non-essentials eventually become obstacles. And to any one of us who is trying to lean in and trying to figure out God in our place with Him, if you're someone who would say something like, like I want to be a good Christian or a true follower or a disciple of Jesus, when you, you bump into something like this, it's like, I, I just, I'm not sure that that's part of the equation. I think maybe you just made that up. And when that happens, mature, thoughtful people have to step back and they reconsider, they rethink and they ask, can I be a part of this? Should I be a part of this? And maybe this is part of your story at one point. 
And for many people, sometimes their faith survives. It's just that they just go find another church or they find another denomination. But especially in recent decades, increasingly, people are just going, you know what? I'm, I'm just done. I'm just, I'm just done with Christianity. I'm just done with faith. I'm just done definitely with church. It was either so harmful or hurtful to me or to someone that I love, and they're just like, I can't do it anymore. And many times people, they just, they, they begin to compare the teachings and practices of, and values of certain groups of Christians or certain churches, and they compare that to what you see in Jesus and in the Gospels, and they realize some, something's off. Something just doesn't line up. It's like, I'm no Bible scholar or theologian, but this way of believing or doing things, it just... For some of these things, it just seems made up. And, or the tone or the posture of this, of this particular uh, approach to life of this church. I just read the text and it just doesn't match up. In fact, it almost feels un-Christ-like. And you've experienced people who knew Bible verses, but you wondered if they actually knew Jesus. But see, the problem wasn't the Bible. The problem was that people used the Bible to be able to elevate a personal agenda or elevate or affirm something that they personally feel or the way they think that the world should work or how things should happen. In fact, the truth is I've been in this long enough, I've studied enough that if you come to me and you just give me a Bible and tell me you want me to justify something with the Bible, you just give me a few minutes and I'll be able to find a verse, a passage, or story to justify pretty much anything. In fact, a few months ago, we did a series, The Forgotten Way. We took a hard look at how throughout history, people have leveraged verses and stories in the Bible to, see, to uh, support and justify all kinds of horrible, unchristlike things. And over time, as we're seeing in current culture, people step away from faith entirely or away from a version of faith, or they go find themselves another one. And if that's your experience, I'm so very sorry. And... I'm so glad that you're joining us as we work through to answer this important question. What is fundamental? What is essential? And this matters because enough harmful ideas have gotten so woven into uh, the fabric of certain threads of Christianity and certain expressions of Christianity that the Christian faith has become untenable and unlivable for millions because it became no longer good news of great joy for all people, but it's become good news of great joy for a segment of people. And that's a problem. So part one, we began with this. Jesus said, who, he says to his closest guys, who do you say I am? And Peter said, I think you, Jesus, are God's final king. Just like prophets and priests would anoint a man to become king, we believe that God has somehow anointed you to be the final king. And we believe that somehow you are the unique son of God. And Jesus didn't say, okay, let's tone it down a little bit. No, Jesus said, Peter, you are correct, and my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. So we said that last week, that this is the essential of all essentials of the things that we have to believe to be a faithful follower of Jesus. It is to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God's final king. So the first on our list of fundamentals is that Jesus is God's son and our king. But unlike other kings, Jesus pointed out that he was seeking something far greater than just drawing attention to himself and allegiance to himself. Jesus came to do something so much bigger, and that leads us into our second essential. 
during Jesus' final conversation with his, his apostles or his, his disciples, right before he would be arrested and crucified, they're celebrating Passover together. If you've been part of New Life, you've heard us talk about this many, many times, that uh, Jesus is having this last dinner together, and he's doing his best to communicate what they will need to know the most and remember, most remember, because they're about to have a major disruption. So he's been with them a little over three years. They have camped together. They have walked together. They have traveled together. They have laughed together. They have cried together. They have faced challenges and threats together. In fact, there are so many days that we actually don't know anything about because they're not recorded for us in, in the Gospels. But for day and night, constantly for three years, they are together. And it's evident to Jesus that they're still confused about the purpose of his activity among them. They're still confused about, why did you drag us all over the place? And, and why, did you, why did we have to sit through the same sermon over and over and over again? And, and, and why all the miracles? In fact, we think that tomorrow or sometime soon, you're going to throw off your rabbinic robes and you're going to basically proclaim yourself Messiah and we're going to establish a brand new kingdom on earth and expel the Romans. And it's going to be like the days of David and Solomon all over again. And they had expectations. And like all of us, they had Jesus in their God box. Yet Jesus continues to say and do things that don't fit in their God box. And they continue to miss the purpose of him living among them. Just like most of us, as we're going to discover, most of us miss. We miss the point of Jesus living among them as well. We are in some ways just as confused as the apostles. And here's why. The primary confusion arises from the way the Bible has been presented, talked about, and taught to us. The problem is not the Bible. The problem is that many of you are like me. You were given a Bible when you were young. It was mapped. It was wrapped. Maybe had a concordance and notes. And, it's, and this is God's Word. And the way it's presented and taught is this is all from God, therefore it's all important, therefore it's all equally important. And consequently, the events the, the, uh, recorded in the four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we refer to as the Gospels, they get reduced to Bible stories, which makes Jesus' story equal in weight and importance as everything else and all the other stories in the Bible. But if you don't hear anything else, you, you've got to hear this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are much more than Bible stories about Jesus. If you think about it, in the Bible, we have, whether you believe it or not, we have one account of the flood. We have one account of David and Goliath. An amazing story, but one account. We have one account of the parting of the Red Sea. We have one account of so many incidents when it comes to Old Testament history leading up to Jesus. But when it comes to Jesus, we have four accounts of the same person, all written within the first century. Why? Why so many? Why so much in the Bible about Jesus? Because they are not equal to everything else in the Bible. Because something dramatic happened. Something new had happened. Something came that eclipsed and rose above and overshadowed the significance of everything that had happened before, which was important. 
but it was leading to a grand finale, a grand climax. So Jesus, he's in the room. He's talked about so many troubling things that do not fit in their God box. So they're trying to keep up with Jesus. And I'm going to pick it up with a statement that, again, some, some of us, most of us have heard many, many times. And, but we just we tend to move on past it. But here's what we need to understand. When Jesus made this statement, the implications of what he was saying should have caused each one of them to get up, leave the room, abandon Jesus, and never look back. And please hear me when I say this. The implications of what Jesus says should cause all of us to get up, leave the room, log off, never look back if what he said isn't true. He has been telling them many troubling things that are about to happen, so they are deeply troubled. So then he looks at them and he says, guys, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, don't you? And we would expect him then to say, so trust him. Just trust God. Like, really believe in him. But that's not what he says. He says, look, you believe in God, so just like you believe in God, believe also in me. Imagine if I stood up here and said to you, listen, I know that you've got some stressful, overwhelming challenges going on in your life. Uh, things are crazy in America. They're crazy globally. There's just all this stuff in the world. But don't be troubled. I mean, you, you believe in God, right? He said, yeah. Okay, so you, you trust God. So just like you trust God, you should also trust me. And again, you should get up, leave the room, and never look back. So once again, he equates himself with God. Now, here's what I'll, I want all of us to do just for a minute. Whether you're raised in church or not, whether you're a Christian or not, I just want each of you to take all of your presuppositions and the categories about God and Jesus and the Bible, the whole thing, just whatever you've come to believe in, just for a moment. I want you to take all of that and set it aside for just a moment and just assume you, you didn't know any of it. Just for a moment, to let yourself be in the moment the best that you can, and imagine yourself, you're in this room 2,000 years ago in this Roman-occupied part of the Mideast, and you're sitting on the floor off to the side against the wall. It's nighttime. It's not very well lit. There's oil lamps. It's a little smoky. It's not very bright in the room. You smell the food. You smell the sweat of the men. And then sitting at the table is this man in a robe with a beard, and he says the following things to the men in this room. And again, you're, you're in the old city of Jerusalem in this intimate room, and you hear this rabbi from Nazareth say the following. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. In other words, he's looking at you and he's saying, to the degree that you know me, you know God. The God of the universe. 
that transcends space, time, physics. Do you really grasp the gravity of his words? Because when the implications of that statement settles in on you, you really have two choices. To walk away or allow it to define and redefine your view of God. Let me say it a little different way. When you hear the term God, and then when you hear the term Jesus, do these two words, God and Jesus, stir up different emotions? When, when you're talking with your friends, family, especially those for you, you'd say, I'm a believer, and you have people that aren't believers that you work with, fellow students, people uh, in your family, which one are you more comfortable talking about, God or Jesus? Faith in God or faith in Jesus? Which one do you like better? Which one are you more comfortable with? And here's why I'm asking, because if that creates some level of tension in you, if you're more comfortable talking with whomever about God, which can be very broad, more so than Jesus, it means that you've got some D and maybe some reconstruction to do about your view of God and Jesus, just like everyone in the room with Jesus had to do that night. As long as, long as many of us have been in church, and as many times as we've heard the Bible stories, there is still this tension. There's God, and then there's Jesus, which creates tension. But Jesus smiles as he looks at the men in this room, and he just looks at you and he says, there should be no tension. In fact, he doubles down. He says, look, from now on, you do know him. You do know God. And you've seen him. He's saying, you do know God. You do know the Father. You've seen the Father. You know him and you've seen him because you know me and you have seen me. Do you, do you truly grasp the magnitude of that statement? I've had conversations with people who categorize Jesus as a good teacher. And maybe for some of you or people you know, but maybe for some of you, it's just kind of how you view Jesus. You kind of group him in with other good religious leaders throughout history, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad. Muhammad, but you need to understand, Jesus wasn't a good teacher. He, he claimed to be equal to God. So if he wasn't, he was a liar or he was a lunatic. And I think we can all agree that no one should follow a liar or a lunatic. Jesus claimed too much to be claimed, to be called or referred to as a good teacher. They respond like we should have, or like we would have. In fact, one of the reasons that I love the Gospels is because and feel they're so reliable is that we're not told that they said, well, we believe, we're in. If this were all made up and somebody's trying to make up a religion about a good teacher, that's how they would have written it. But instead, the Gospels document for us what happened. And they're realistic like us. It's like, this, this is just too much. And, and Philip, who's sit, sitting there, he finally says what all the rest of them are thinking. And again, it's an example of how honest that the Gospels are. They've seen enough to know that we're not just dealing with a mere mortal. I mean, just a few days earlier, they were in Bethany, where he raised a man from the dead. Not like just died, like dead, dead. Like dead, funeral, four days later, he's in, 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 in the grave. So they know they're not dealing with a mere mortal, but, but God in a body? Sitting here in sandals with a beard, and so Philip says, Lord, so he's respectful, Lord, just 
just show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. Like, Lord, I'm not arguing with you, but we're just, we're just confused. We do want to know what God is like, and we want to know what God is like. You and I want to know what God is like. We want to know exactly what God is like. And so he asked, just, just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Because yes, we have the Torah, and, and that helps, and we have the prophets, and we have the Psalms, and we have the temple, and the priests, and we have our history, and all that helps. But there's still so much about God that is a mystery. God seems so far away at times, and the Romans are here, and none of this makes sense, but we believe that you've come from God. So Jesus, would you show us the Father? Just make God clear for us. See, they're exactly like us. And Jesus is thinking, you want me to show you the Father? Like, guys, what do you think I've been doing for the past three years? Why, why do you think I dragged you around everywhere I dragged you to and had you for the things that I did there for the things I had you for? Guys, I didn't come to provide more Bible stories. I came so that you could know what the Father is like. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? even after I've been among you for so long, and in this moment, this no mere mortal looking into the eyes of Philip, he says, don't you know me? And what grips me and has for a long time, every time I read this, what grips me personally is that God, that Philip is literally looking into the eyes of eternity, of God in a body, he says to Philip, how many miles have we walked together? How many campfires have we built together? How many conversations have we had? How many things have you seen me do? How many questions have I answered and answered and answered? And you have been with, with me day in, day out, seen everything I've done, heard everything I've said for over three years. Don't you still, do you still not know me? He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And as we begin this new year, here's the question that every single one of us needs to answer. No religious affiliation, none, skeptic, spiritualist, believers, no matter how long you believe, the question is, who is Jesus? Really? Because if he's not who he claimed to be, you should walk away. And if you don't, it begs the question, what if he's right? What if Jesus is as close as you will ever know to getting to knowing what God is like this side of heaven? What if, what if the reality is if you stop short of Jesus, you miss God? And if you go beyond Jesus, you miss God. Jesus continu he continues, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words I say to you, I do not speak to you on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father who is living in me, who is doing his work. Guys, all the great stories that you've heard and love, I didn't come up with that. Guys, you need to understand when I spoke to you, you were hearing directly from God, your Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you have heard me, you have heard the Father. If you have been watching me, you have been watching the Father work. I am not simply some good religious teacher. The reason I'm here is so that you can know without a doubt what God is like. 
I came to remove some of the mystery. I came personally to add some personality. I came to live among you so that you can know him and what he's like. I am the king, but I am here on his behalf because he knows you want to know him and he wants to be known. You've read about his mighty deeds in the past, but now he has come to dwell among you to close the distance. You want to know what God is like Do you want to know what God has to say, what he likes, what he feels about others? Would you like to know how God would respond? Jesus is as close, as clear, and as good as it gets. If you're going to be a faithful follower of Jesus, this is essential. The Gospels are not additional Bible stories, and they're not Bible stories about Jesus. It's why we have so many of them. They document Jesus' example and explanation of what God is like. And think about this. If, if Jesus was telling the truth, it means every time you open up or you pull up the Bible, you open the New Testament, and especially if it's in red letters, you see those letters. You, when you read the words of Jesus, you are literally reading the words of God, your Father. In the past, God would inspire a prophet to write something, but Jesus is speaking directly on behalf of God because he is God's son. He is God's spokesman to the world, yet far too many of us treat Jesus and the Gospels as if Jesus had come to just teach us cool and helpful things. No, Jesus came to reveal God to us. He came to introduce God in the most intimate of terms as the perfection of Father, and what the Father values, and who the Father values, and the meaning of life, and how to live life, and how the Father responds to sinners, and repentant sinners, and prodigal sons, and prodigal daughters, and prodigal everything, everyone, and everything leading up to Jesus was a shadow of the main event to come. In the first century, there was a Pharisee who was absolutely committed to Torah, to the, the Jewish law and the prophets, absolutely committed to God's covenant, with Israel, a Hebrew absolutely committed to all of it, but then he becomes a Jesus follower, and he abandons the old covenant and embraces the new covenant. He is the one that gave us the term, the law of Christ, and Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul, a Pharisee. He tells us, look, what God has promised to do in the past, he has done. He has shown up in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, and you need to join me in following him. Everything that came before was simply a sign. It pointed to something. What has happened in our midst, in our generation, is far superior to any of that. He writes, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, of the shadow is found in Christ. In other words, you can tell a lot of things about a shadow, about something by its shadow. But you can't tell everything about it. The reality of what cast the shadow is now visible. The shadow cast in the past is found in the Messiah, the Christ, God's final king. The shadow caster has arrived. And John, late in his life, he spent all those years with Jesus. He sat down as an old man. He's dictating this. He's trying to figure out, how do I start this story? Many people have written about it. Luke tells us a lot of people have tried to write about Jesus because this was such a huge deal. And John begins his gospel in the beginning, not God created the heavens and the earth. We've already got that. 
He begins, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And the Word was God. And it came and dwelt among us. Literally, he camped out, he pitched his tent with us so that we could know him, know God, know the Father, and what God the Father is like. What came before wasn't wrong, it was just incomplete. The author of Hebrews echoes this. You should read the whole passage. I'm just going to give you a snippet. The author writes that the law is just a shadow. It's only a shadow of the good things that were and are coming, not the realities themselves, that since the beginning of the world, men and women have been searching for God. The pagan world was extraordinarily religious. Everybody believed in gods, in the gods. And they would add gods, and they would subtract gods, and your gods stronger than my god, but everybody had gods, and everyone was constantly looking up, trying to figure out the gods, or what's going on up there, what's life's meaning, what's behind all of this. And until the arrival of Jesus, even the Jews, to some extent, they wondered And they tried to figure this out. And then with the arrival of Jesus, God made it as clear as it could possibly be made clear to mortal people. He accommodates to our capacity. God comes in the flesh to dwell among us. And so many people recorded the words and the works of Jesus. Four of them survived antiquity. And we have these amazing pieces of documentation. And it's clear that Jesus didn't simply have the best explanation for God. Jesus is the best explanation of God. So the second thing in order to be or become a faithful follower of Jesus is to embrace that Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like. To reveal and to explain God the Father. That we're not limited or that we're not left to draw our own conclusions based on our own own personal experience or emotions or even nature. That if you want to know what God is like, it's this simple. If you want to know what God is like, God is like Jesus. And the great news, because that is great news, because that means God loves you personally. And God has offered you forgiveness because Jesus was given authority to forgive sin at will. So I just want to end with this question. Does your view of God the Father align with and match your view of Jesus the Son? That when you think of God and when you think of Jesus, are they interchangeable? Are they equal? Or is there tension? Because if there's tension, then you have some work to do. If they conjure up different emotions, you have some work to do because according to Jesus, you will not know what the Father is like until you know what Jesus is like. And you get the clearest picture of Jesus in the Gospels by following him through the Gospels. So as we're still on the front end of this new year, it's the perfect time to decide that starting today, tomorrow at the latest, otherwise you know it's not going to happen, just like those I'm still waiting for a text back. Uh, it's just, but you need to decide that you're going to make time, you're going to block time to read through or listen to an audio version of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, individually, as a couple, with a friend, as a family, I suggest you begin with John, but you don't have to. If you're a stickler for order, that's fine. So fundamental number one is Jesus is God's Son and our King. 
Fundamental two is Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like. Because, but Jesus came to do something else as well within this context, and that's where we'll pick up next week for part three of our fundamental list. Let me pray for us. Father, I am so grateful for the text that we do have. I wish we had so much more that we know was written, but we don't have it. Father, we just thank you for the people that we will never even know that risked their lives to make sure that we could have these texts in a language that we could understand. And I pray for every single one of us, Father, that you would truly help it to sink into our heart and mind who Jesus was and what he represents so that it might adjust our priorities and our appetite and our hunger and our thirst knowing that all these questions that we have about you and what you're like, so much of it we already have. And Father, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to each one of us. We're all at various places in this journey of spirituality and faith and trying to understand you. And So Father, I pray for every man, every woman, every young person listening to me right now that God, you'll, just, you'll meet us where we're at. And that, Father, you will reveal yourself to each of us in a dramatic way so that we can know you. So that way, no matter what life is throwing at us, that we can have peace. Because the living God has come to dwell with us. You didn't leave somehow when Jesus left. Jesus said he would send a helper. He called it the Holy Spirit. So you've not abandoned us. You've not left us. There's a grand story being written that we get to be a part of. And so, Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself to each of us in a way that we understand, that we perceive, and that, Father, that would inform every decision, every act of love, every act of forgiveness or kindness or grace in our spheres of influence. And that, Father, for those of us that claim to believe in you and claim to believe in your Son, that, Father, they, they would experience you through us and it would propel them towards you. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.